it's incredibly inspiring. It really gives you a, a message that you cannot allow yourself to be blue, to be upset, to be devastated, to run out of energy and resources. You have to fight, you have to keep moving forward, and you have to keep this vision of victory always on your radar. This is absolutely essential to finally win. So this is how it is to work with, with President Zelensky. Nine months ago, Vladimir Putin launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Since then, Russian forces have inflicted mass devastation on Ukraine and its people, forcing millions to flee. The conflict has also sent shockwaves around the globe, testing European solidarity and exposing much of the world to a cost-of-living crisis. My guest today is a man who is spearheading Ukraine's diplomatic efforts, calling on all nations to support Ukraine's counter-offensive against Russia. Dmitry Kuleba is one of the youngest senior diplomats in Ukraine's history, who, since March 2020, has served as Minister of Foreign Affairs. I'm Carlotta Rebello, and I traveled to Kyiv to speak to Mr. Kuleba on the big interview. Thank you very much for having us here in your office. It's a pleasure to be back in Kyiv. Last time we were in town was in July, and we saw you briefly at a press conference at the um, summit of the First Ladies and Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you out of your crutches as well. Um, I want to go back to February and start by asking you just about your job and how much has changed since then. Oof. <laughs> Uh, of course, a lot, almost everything has changed. I'm a diplomat who learned a lot about armor, weapons, military tactics, strategies, because of the Russian attacks on our critical energy infrastructure. I'm also becoming an expert in energy. I'm learning everything about generators, transformers, grids, and how to help them, how to, how to repair them. So if we look at it from the positive perspective, of course, I have dramatically expanded my knowledge and expertise, and I can do any job after I'm done with this one. From a more kind of, not negative, but from a, from a more realistic perspective, of course, the most difficult thing is to ask yourself every day and night. You know, every, every morning I wake up, I'm asking myself, have I done everything that I could yesterday to help our army at the front line to bring all the weapons that they need? Have I done everything that I could to help prevent airstrikes and missile strikes? And when I go to bed in the evening, I'm asking myself the same, the same question again. So you always feel this burden on your shoulders, your responsibility for lives of millions of people. This is a completely new feeling to me. And the third thing, of course, is purely personal, but uh, you know, I, I don't think I have, I, I have a right to complain, but seeing my children uh, less, to put, let me be, put it mildly, less often, and not seeing how they grow up and how they address their challenges they face as teenagers is quite painful. But this is the time that we have to take the pain. Is it difficult not to take it personally, if you don't mind the expression, the burden of the war, as you put it. No, we have, we, we have to take it personally. I think that only if you take it personally will you be able to deliver. 
And this is what we actually also try other leaders to, to make other leaders feel the same way. I have seen on so many occasions when a foreign leader who or a foreign minister who is in principle supportive of Ukraine comes here, speaks to the people, sees everything with his or her own eyes, and it becomes personal to him too. He becomes reinvigorated and you know double double strong in supporting Ukraine. It really works. What you have to avoid professionally is emotions to overwhelm you. You cannot allow emotions to dominate you. And this is quite an issue, by the way. And uh, even two glasses of wine in the evening cannot help you to compensate the prohibition on expressing your, on allowing your emotions to dominate, to overwhelm. You have to remain rational. Whether you are outraged by the atrocities committed by the Russians, or you are excited about the successes of your soldiers on the battlefield, you have control both of these emotions because you have to remain sharp and rational in you, in the decisions you are making for one, one very simple reason, because millions of people depend on how effective you are. You mentioned there the importance of either your counterparts or foreign leaders to come to Ukraine and seeing things with their own eyes. Now, a foreign minister would traditionally maybe take up his entire time in the job, if even that was enough, to meet all these world leaders and all these other foreign ministers. The war, in a way, has kind of sped up that process to you, and you've been basically meeting everyone that you can. What has that been like for you to have such an increased dialogue with other nations? And when you speak to them, what is the main message you're trying to get across? Is it to get them to come visit you? in Ukraine and seeing things with their own eyes. I'm just curious about, yeah. yes, that relationship. Okay, first I have to be completely honest with you. I hate traveling, traveling for business purposes. I love traveling for leisure and exploring the world and seeing everything. But I have traveled so much during my career that uh, I only travel when there is an ultimate necessity to be there in person. If you see me traveling, this is a clear message that it's a must. It's not just another trip on the schedule. Something is happening that absolutely demands my physical presence on the ground and my personal conversations. Like it was the case, for example, with my travels to Berlin and The Hague, where we were advocating this skeptics, this then skeptics of Ukraine's accession to EU to support granting Ukraine the status of EU candidate country. Or my trips to Poland, I spent, I think, almost a week there, just talking with everyone, with some people multiple times. But in the end, the deliveries of some heavy military hardware, tanks and armored vehicles from, from Poland were unlocked. Or take my last trip to Africa. I had to provide a follow-up to the phone conversations between President Zelensky and African leaders to kind of give birth to the renaissance in Ukraine-African relations. So every time I travel, I do it upon instruction of the president with a very specific purpose, be it political issue, military issue, or economic issue. Every time I speak with foreign ministers or if I am received by foreign leaders as a follow-up to their contacts with President Zelensky, I'm always honest 
I'm always sharing my personal experience of this war with them. I always want them to understand one thing. On the 24th of February, Putin attacked not only Ukraine, but entire Europe, and more broadly speaking, entire world order. The only difference is that while he's doing it here in Ukraine with tanks and missiles, he's doing it with Europe through energy crisis, through artificially made energy crisis, through inflation, through propaganda, and various attempts to destabilize domestic political situation in a number of countries. So this is what we want other countries to understand. It's not only about Ukraine. It's about much broader issue. You mentioned, of course, the start of the war, and I think it's fair to say that Russia is the enemy here, or the invader in this case, and the aggressor. Can diplomacy be a pathway? How do you yourself as a diplomat even entertain the idea of negotiating with someone who is so blatantly an aggressor to your country, your people, your values, and Europe as well? This is, of course, a tricky question uh, to a diplomat. Uh, first, my job as a diplomat now is to make sure that the coalition of countries supporting Ukraine is getting larger and becoming more solid, more consolidated. Second, to bring as much of what our army needs as we can from the entire world into the country as soon and do it as soon as possible. And third is to mobilize as many financial resources as possible to ensure recovery of post-war recovery of Ukraine. When you are a wartime foreign minister, this is what you, you are focused on. The moment for negotiations will come because every war ends with diplomacy. But my job now is to make sure that Ukraine approaches this moment in the strongest position possible and Russia in the weakest position possible. And then if we have to sit down at the table and speak with them, we will do that. But they won't be able to speak the language of ultimatums as they are doing now. I'm ready to sit down with them. I will never shake their hands, but I'm ready to sit down and talk with them if it is in the best interests of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. But as I said, we will come to the table in the strongest position possible and we will restore territorial independence of our country. Of course, when you were in New York at the United Nations General Assembly, representatives of the Russian government were there. What is it like for you, even on a personal level, what does it feel like to be in the same room with them? Um, listen, uh, as I told you, you cannot allow emotions to, to overwhelm you. But if you ask me about the basic feeling that I have towards them, is a disgust. It's not hate. They're miserable people trying to advocate through diplomacy excuses for the atrocities and crimes they have committed. I think they drink a lot of vodka before going to sleep just to suppress their own disgust to themselves, that they feel towards themselves. And if they don't uh, do that, if they feel absolutely fine with what is happening and they are honest uh, Putin loyalists, then, you know, they are pure evil. And pure evil has to fail. Now, you've had 
and are having a remarkable career. And one of your jobs before was, of course, you were responsible for European relations. And I'm curious, of course, in the meantime, the pathway to EU accession has been opened. There's talks about NATO. I'm curious, where do you see the future of Ukraine? Is it as a EU member, a NATO member, a neutral country? Where do you see the pathway for the country? Yeah, we, we will be full members of both EU and NATO. We will be an integral and indispensable part of the West as a notion. The West is not a geographical notion, it's a kind of a political notion, right? If you share the same principles and values, you belong to the West irrespective of your geography or you are somehow associated with the West in that, in that context. So yeah, Ukraine will be a Western country with strong ties to the global South, one of the guarantors of the global food security, member of EU and NATO with a very strong army. As an outcome of this war, I think that uh, Ukraine will be the second most important military force in NATO after the United States because the experience that we are getting, the stamina and the military power we are gaining now will be absolutely exceptional. So the security of the Euro-Atlantic area will, to a large extent, depend on Ukraine. And Ukraine will not be just on the periphery of its eastern flank. It will be a crucial pillar of the security of the entire Europe. So fast forward, let's say, 10, 15 years, you see Ukraine as being the stabilizing force in terms of security for Europe. Yes, that's a very good point. A way to put it, we will be a stabilizing force in terms of military secu hard security, but also soft security when it comes to food security, for example. But I have a habit, I never specify any deadlines. So I can neither confirm nor reject the reference to 10 or 15 years but in principle, I agree with the outcome that you have just identified. You agree with the outcome, the timeline uh, is just it's my own words then. Yes. Um, well, I wanted to ask you as well about, you are one of the youngest senior members in government and diplomats in Ukraine. Does that change the way you approach your job? Do you feel that that plays a role in how, in your worldview, how you relate to your counterparts? Two weeks ago, a colleague of mine in the government said, Dmitro, you changed your haircut and you changed your glasses. You look much younger now. And I had to respond to him that uh, finally I reached the age when you have to do something with yourself and you have to change something in yourself to look younger. <laughs> because all the years before that, one of the frequent words I was hearing towards myself was he's too young for this job whether I was a first secretary or ambassador at large or ambassador to the Council of Europe. And some criticized me for being too young when I was appointed as foreign minister. But this was the choice that President Zelensky made, and I'm deeply grateful to him. He entrusted this system to me. But speaking more broadly, I don't think it's... I, I, th I, I, I really have a feeling that the time has chosen us, President Zelensky other people in his team, you know, we have to do it. There is a certain mission that we have to complete. It's a big responsibility that drives me forward. 
and and I, I don't know how much time it will take, really, but I have a very, very strong conviction that we will deliver for our country and for Europe in a broader sense. You mentioned uh, President Zelensky a few times in our conversation. How's your relationship with him, with his way of governing as a president? I'm curious how, of course, you have a close relationship professionally. Do you also have that personally? How's your relationship with President Zelensky? Well, President Zelensky is cool. That's to make a long story short. And uh, it's really a big professional pleasure to work with him. His favorite question to ministers, including me, and to every member of his team, has always, even before the war, been when? Because he wants to do everything fast. And he perfectly understands what he wants to do. He has one very special feature, which I admire, because, you know, I'm in principle, I'm an optimist by default. But there are moments when I feel blue. And sometimes I just give you a quick story just that, that happened just like a week ago or something. So I came to his office for a meeting with him. And I felt blue because of these Iranian drones attacking cities and various pieces of energy infrastructure across Ukraine. And that was the day after my, my mother saw an Iranian drone, you know, flying over her head towards the target and it terrified her. So I was pretty blue and I came to his office uh, waiting for the conversation to begin. And all of a sudden he looked at me and all of a sudden he said, you know, I'm now thinking of where we will locate our museum of victory. And you're like looking at him and you realize that against all odds, against hundreds of the most difficult decisions he has to take every day and uh, to assume and bear full responsibility for everything that is happening in the country during the war for the strategy of fighting back. Even in the darkest moments, he's thinking about the Victory Museum. It's incredibly inspiring. It really gives you a, a message that you cannot allow your, to, you cannot allow yourself to be blue, to be upset, to be devastated, to, be, to run out of energy and resources. You have to fight, you have to keep moving forward, and you have to keep this vision of victory always on your radar. This is absolutely essential to finally win. So this is how it is to work with, with President Zelensky. I want to go back to uh, something we were talking about earlier, which was the limited travel abroad for business that you, you do. And one of them was a tour you were doing of African nations that sadly had to be interrupted because of the attacks here on October 10th. But I'm curious if, how do I phrase this? Uh, Russia has always had a strong influence over Africa. And I wonder if Ukraine reviving the relationships in the continent is a strategic move to counter that balance. It is. African countries are making the same mistake European countries had been making before the war began. They put on equal footing Russia and the USSR. Russia and the rest of Soviet republics. So, yeah, I, the war the war in Ukraine that started in 2014 was the first moment when the majority in Europe started actually ask itself a question, 
okay, they are fighting each other, these Russians and Ukrainians, probably they are not the same thing, and we have to look deeper to understand who these people are. It's the same with Africa. In Africa, Russia is USSR. USSR was helping with decolonization. USSR was subsidizing leftist governments across Africa. USSR was doing trade and building infrastructure in these parts of the world. And Russian propaganda works, works there too. Um, so the, the mistake that we all made, both here in Ukraine, but also in other capitals in Europe, we were not taking the relationship with Africa in a serious way with African countries. So I went there and I said, guys, first, put the Soviet Union aside. Look at this. Ukraine, when we were in the 80s, as member of the United Nations, we held the presidency of the UN General Assembly Committee fighting against apartheid and racial discrimination in Africa. It was not the USSR, it was not Russia, it was us, engineers who came here to build various dams and factories during Soviet times. Many of them were Ukrainians. So you have to make this difference. You have to differentiate. Second, you are speaking how good, uh, how helpful Russia is. Let's take the list of the biggest investors in Africa. Russia, where is it? It's not there. Let's take a list of countries and international institutions who provide African countries with international aid. Where is Russia on the list? It is not even there. It's somewhere, in both cases, it's so low that it becomes invisible. The biggest investment that Russia has made in Africa in recent years is by importing Wagner Group mercenaries to sow conflicts, to destabilize the situation, and to pose threat to your countries. So start thinking rationally about Russia. Base your perception of Russia on facts and not on historical perceptions. But to achieve that, you know, but to make it happen, you have to speak with them. You have to treat them with respect, and uh, that's what we do. And that is also what we will continue to do. Earlier, you mentioned, of course, the burden of the war. So... How do you keep a cool head without emotions running through your decisions? And how do you relax on your day-to-day? -day? Are you even able to? Are you waiting for after the war to finally wind down? But on your day-to-day, -day, are you able to relax at all? How, how do you keep yourself cool? Well, I have uh, my best method of relaxation are my dogs. When I come home and they jump on me and try to lick me and ask me to cuddle them, that is really a reset, a real reset. I'm, I'm really grateful to them for helping me with that. My meditation is uh, smoking a cigar in the evening. This is like 45 minutes of just relaxation and concentration on something else than my daily routine. And... Um, the third rule is to sleep. Whatever happens, you have to force yourself to sleep. Because if you lose your hours of sleep, you will exhaust yourself pretty quickly and uh, you will not be able to make reasonable decisions. So even if I'm uh, agitated, even if I'm full of thoughts and emotions which bring me to the condition of insomnia, I have to force myself to sleep by all means, because it's, it's absolutely essential. 
And of course, the rare moments when we can spend time with children, that's the biggest, the biggest uh, inspiration to me. What are the names of your dogs and uh, what cigars do you smoke? Uh, so I have three dogs. My first dog and the oldest one is uh, Gustav. He's a Jack Russell. The second dog is Benjamin. He's a toy puddle. And my third dog, he's a French bulldog I have adopted from Mariupol. He is uh, uh, <clears throat> very, um, you know, he has survived the bombings in Mariupol. So he's a real kind of a real fighter, though uh, it all happened. Uh, he was born on the 19th of February. Yes, and he survived uh, many bad things in Mariupol before I adopted him, before he was evacuated and I adopted him. So I called him Marik, because Marik is the short, in Ukraine, Marik is the short name for Mariupol, the city. Uh, <clears throat> and um, we live quite, you know, um, dynamic life with them, because two of them, Gustav and Benjamin, they mostly live with either my former wife or with my parents outside of the city where they can, you know, run uh, on the grass and enjoy life. Marek mostly lives with me. And the days when all three of them are with me, it's pretty messy because all of these breeds are very active, as you know. But it's uh, total love. It's just uh, full, full concentration of love. When it comes to cigars, I'm very open-minded. I like to try cigars from all over the world. But my favorite is probably Churchill Late Hour by Davidov. And by a coincidence, it's the one that I smoked yesterday. And uh, the last question I have for you is, you said how travel for business is not for you, but to for leisure and to explore the world, it's completely different. Let's look forward without putting a timeline to when you're able to travel for leisure again. Where would you like to go? I promised... To the woman I love, uh, that uh, the first trip we will make after we win will be to Normandy. Because Normandy is so quiet, so relaxing. And um, part of that, I'm a big fan of uh, Calvados and Cider. So this will be the best place for me to relax. Dimitri Kleber, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Jewers. From me, Carlotta Rubello, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.